Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, how come civilization did not start in the infertile crescent? (laughs) Well, you know, I I think it would have just died out. (laughs) But as it was, was would it be a kind of civilization that lived for about 50 years, slowly experiencing its own demise? Or I guess it wouldn't even have started in the first place. No, I mean, if it's the infertile crescent, it's really just nothing is ever born there, or there's no reproduction. Right. Yeah. So, I guess uh, we're lucky it would that... Be, it would be a barren place. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You nailed that joke. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Well, that was our not-so-subtle <laughs> introduction to today's Children of Men episode, both a book and a movie, and we're going to do both. However, more than anything, I th- maybe ever... That I've ever uh, come across in a movie that is an adapted screenplay from a book, they're about as different as they can get. <laughs> like it's almost as if they just took the same premise and went different directions with the story. Yeah, I think I commented it was either today or yesterday to you because we were just kind of chatting about Children of Men off air. That the only thing that I can really say is a, the same between the two is the main character and the premise. Everything yeah. else, I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of characters with the same name. But they're not even the same characters. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're not yeah, the I same guess characters. Jasper's kind of the same character. No, he's way better. In, he's, like, way nicer in the movie. Yeah, oh, well, way nice. <laughs> yeah, Jasper's kind of a, a bastard in the book. Yeah, so we're going to do something a little bit different with this episode in that we're actually going to go through each the movie and the book individually because of how different they are and the different little points and motifs that come out of them. But we're going to do both, so (laughs) strap yourselves in. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, Yeah, so we're going to start with the movie because we imagine that's what everyone out there is more familiar with. 2006 movie directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who, if I'm not mistaken, also did the third Harry Potter movie and several others. And then he adapted a screenplay with someone named Timothy Sexton of the, I think it's 1991 book, P.D. James. I'm not sure what the P.D. stands for because I didn't look that up. But I think it's Patricia. Patricia? I believe, I believe so. All right. Anyway, British novelist and the copy of the book we have has a picture of Clive Owen on the front because he plays the yeah, main character. The reprint advertising. For the image in motion picture, yeah. right? And so... I had never read the book until we read it for this podcast. And so I had no idea how different it was from the movie, but I've seen I'd seen the movie several times. Probably after watching it again for this one, I'd probably seen it about 8 times in my life and I I was always captivated by the cinematography of it. Obviously the plot and the uh, material are really interesting too, but I think the thing that 
this this movie I love this movie. Like it was a movie I loved well before it ever came up as a topic to do on this podcast. The thing I think about it the most is the long shots. So many long shots. Yeah, I, I took notes this time and I counted at least four <laughs> really long ones that were awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the movie came out in 2006 and it stars Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, even though she's in the movie for a very short period of time. Like so, she, Yeah, it doesn't like, play a... She plays a major emotional role, but yeah. not, not really a... And narrative connection. Screen time role. Yeah, and then... Oh, I should have figured out how to pronounce his name i know i'm gonna get it wrong but it's like chiotel Ijiofor, i think is his name he plays the guy named luke yes <laughs> in yes. the movie and then i couldn't i, I kind of recognize him so i looked it up and apparently the guy who plays patrick the guy with the dreadlocks is charlie hunnan or hunnam however you say his name who's also a rel- he was not really famous in 2006 he's a little bit more famous now and then who am i missing Michael Caine, I guess, yeah. plays Jasper. I don't think there's anyone else famous in the movie. I can't think of it. But anyway. It's really uh, not driven by the actors or actresses in this one. It's very much plot-driven. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> cinematography-driven. Yes. Hey? I, and I would say primarily cinematography. Like The reason people love this movie has a lot to do with the... with like Movie lovers love this movie. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that's probably... I mean, realistically, that's why it stuck around in my mind so much. I think is especially that long shot right in the in like the second or third last scene is like almost it's like a seven and a half minute I think long shot of just following Clive Owen's character Theo yes around this refugee camp that's in the middle that's turned into a war zone (laughs) and all the rubble and stuff is really cool and so it'd be quicker to point out the similarities between the book and the movie than the differences yeah because so there's almost none so. yeah so we're actually probably we're going to give a completely different plot rundown for the book when we talk about it a little bit later but the plot rundown for the movie if you haven't seen it is that the movie starts with uh, the overall setting of the movie and book uh, is the same which is that as per my joke off the top humanity has stopped being able to have children for 25 uh, years at this point basically was it 25? Yeah. In the movie? Well, the youngest person was 18 who dies at the beginning. In the movie. Right? In the movie, right? So I'm pretty sure it was 18 years or 19, something like that. So the movie is set. A difference is the movie is set in 2027. The book is set in 2021 to reflect, I think, the age or the time difference yeah. of when they were. Well, 1995 made. is kind of the Omega generation. Yeah. That was it, the last year. Yeah, 1995 was in the, the last. Book in the book and so then i guess if it's 18 in the movie 2027 it would have been 2007 yeah right which would have been the year or 2006 so okay that's per- that's obviously why yeah. because <laughs> the year. that's the year the movie came out yeah yeah and that's math with really true <laughs> fiction <laughs> so anyway we start with theo clive owens character and he's in a it's we're clearly in england and or london and he starts in a cafe and we're being uh, told that the world's youngest person has just died, uh, murdered by a fan because he's a celebrity because he's the world's youngest person. And so then uh, this is big news because humans, you know, can't have kids anymore. And so like really the thing to keep in mind is like the setting of everything is a, is a, this is dystopian. Like this it is, is dystopian, dystopian because it's, and it's a weirdly realistic one because it's not based on, 
anything kind of supernatural or super ordinate or super technological happening. It's just kind of something like, and it's not gone into too deeply, but there's been a disease or an infection or a virus that have made it impossible. They talk a little bit about the book, but it's been impossible for people to have children anymore. And they can't figure it out. And they can't figure it out. So what do you do when there's still humans left for like another 70 years approximately until they die out but you know you're dying out like it's just such a crazy like existentially it's just a really rough road to walk Uh, yeah i mean the whole movie and book are essentially like a philosophy thought experiment wet dream yeah yeah (laughs) and it's well it's a confrontation with mortality (laughs) Mm -hmm. like it is it's a serious reflection not not just on individual mortality but on species mortality yeah although i guess it would be a ineffectual wet dream (laughs) Yeah, like you're not getting off. <laughs> yeah, a uh, blanky mission, if you will. <laughs> Oof. So anyway, and then what is kind of overlaid onto this society in England is this idea that basically because of this, it's like the government's role to kind of control everything so that there isn't pure anarchy because of everyone's kind of terror, existential terror at facing their own extinction in the mirror <laughs> yeah. kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a the opposite of a thought experiment that Sam Harris once posed was that, well, what? how could you argue in a moral philosophy class that everyone just dying in their sleep one night with no suffering would be a bad thing, <laughs> right? Like, how would because, you argue that? Because there's no one there to bereave. There's no one there to suffer. No one's around. No one will experience it. Obviously, since it's coming from Sam Harris, there's no like afterlife to be tortured in kind of thing. So it's just all the lights go off for everyone all at once. Why is that bad? And then if that doesn't jive... What argument did he make? Well, the thing is, if that doesn't jive with your intuition about what's right and wrong, I think you you need an extra argument on top of suffering or not suffering for something like why it's important to keep life going. And he... His argument is that that would be a bad thing because of all the future value. Yeah. Not generate. I, I think that's a good argument. And right? I, like Elon Musk always says, don't let the light of consciousness go out, right? Like, But whereas in the Children of Men universe, it's more like, okay, all the lights are going to go out, but you have 70 years to watch it happen. Yeah. Like you, you have to <laughs> so, watch them slowly so it is, blinking it's, out. It's, it's like it, It's like all the stars slowly yeah. disappearing, right? And it's it, like, oh. It's like a 70-year tortured version of that thought experiment, <laughs> Oof, right? Yeah. Which is just so much sadder. So anyway, that's the backdrop. It's really important. And I mean, like, obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about what that kind of existential fact is for people in the movie and obviously what it would be like for us if this were to happen and what role planning and and doing things for future generations has in our basic dna of motivating of anything in life and so theo there's just all this political unrest a bomb goes off in the cafe he was just in he's basically dodging it we learn of his relationship with this jasper fellow who it says in the book he went to school with or he was a professor he was so, his professor yeah that's former- the weird thing is in the book um he works at oxford mm-hmm. and oxford plays a very central role to the entire <laughs> yeah, story it's true whereas he seems to be kind of like some bureaucrat mm-hmm. um just working at a government facility yeah. in the movie and really his job and even his past don't play a large role in the movie no but it's like there's they have much closer relationship in the movie than yes. they do in the book right and so anyway we so we meet michael kane's character jasper who lives kind of out in the forest likes um, marijuana yeah likes marijuana but he lives outside he's a fan of classic rock so that was something i was just quite drawn to <laughs> yeah 
And so we have all that set up. We come back. We find out Theo, Clive Owen, gets kidnapped by these group of people. He's revealed to be kidnapped by a group called The Fish. I think in the book, The Five Fish, they just call them The Fish in the movie. And one of the members of The Fish is this woman named Julian, who is a former lover. And we find out mother of, of, his, child. of his child that died before the Omega. I don't think they say Omega in the movie. But anyway, before, it's it like the, a couple years in before. The, book, the kid would have been 27, I think. And yeah. The, I think, yeah, they, they mess with the ages a bit. In the movie, it was they had a son named Dylan, and he died at like age two and a half or three. And it was a couple years before the Omega incident, which is the incident where no one could be born. And so they're former lovers, and Julian finds Theo, recruits him to their cause for they want to get transit papers for this one woman and theo has a cousin who's named nigel who's like a minister no he's well yeah in the in movie, the movie he's, he's a minister, minister. Yeah. and well i think we should just leave it yes, at that okay, for now yeah, because yeah. it's a much different role in the book that's one of the biggest differences actually and so then he gets the transit papers because the government crackdown in all of england is so severe right now because of all the political unrest and so uh, i mean like the backdrop is just people in cages everywhere, kind of like yeah, at all the transit that, stations. This is definitely a a movie that is kind of hammering home immigration issues and and bringing them to the forefront, right? Yeah, and to be fair to the movie, though, that is a, a big part of the book. Oh yes, right. Yes. Like that's yeah. actually probably a major connection or a connecting tissue. It's not like the and movie. It's is interesting just... that this was done in 1961, right? Like, oh, the book was originally uh, 91. Sorry, 1991. Yeah. yeah, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> uh, which is like before this was a major issue in uh, North America, but it was a still at that time a huge issue in Europe. Like, yeah, and a growing one, right? And, and yeah, it's become the defining yeah. issue of European So politics. the uh, <laughs> children of men had images of immigrants and children in cages long before uh, – yeah, it was commercialized the, and popularized. Yeah, exactly. Long before Donald Trump was getting in trouble for yeah. it. Yeah. What a what a poser that Trump is. I hey? know. Just copying <laughs> Just... artistic endeavors from the early nineties. Poser. History certain <laughs> history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, all of this is to get Theo in touch with this woman named Key. And then there's this awesome scene where all of these people in the forest while they're driving attack the car that Luke, Julian, Theo, Key, who is this the main other main woman character in the movie who we find out is the one who, spoiler, not spoiler, is actually pregnant, which is the coolest big, oh my gosh, a new pregnant woman. Like, like maybe we the, haven't seen this in maybe humanity will be saved, right? Yeah. And then Miriam, the midwife. And so there's the five of them in this car, they're driving along. Julian actually gets shot and killed in the car while they're trying to get away. Luke kills a couple cops also. And so Theo's like, what the fuck is going on? Because at this point, he doesn't know. There's such a high level of intensity (laughs) in the cinematography, like you said. Like you... I, they do it so well with the music mm-hmm. and with the the camera angles. You're feeling this sense of tension. Right. Of like just from this one shot, this yeah. one unbroken shot. And at this point, Theo doesn't know that Key is pregnant yet. And so it's all just chaos and horribleness to him. That is just, like he just thinks that they had a bad accident. So anyway, they go to this farmhouse in the English countryside and it's Theo, Miriam, and Key, and then this Luke guy, and then all of these other people show up who are the fish, who are a, a, like a political... Um, Essentially anth- a terrorist organization. Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, terrorism, I think, has a slightly different meaning in this... Freedom y- fighters. I mean, one yeah. man's terrorist, another yeah. man's freedom fighter, right? 
Well, they would the, probably be designated terrorists by the state. I think, yeah, sure, that's right? true. We can leave it at that definition. <laughs> yeah. Whether it would f- they fit the more conventional philosophical term is for another podcast. Right. <laughs> but they find out that the pers- that, that these, this group, the fish, who Julian was essentially a part of, are actually responsible for Julian's death. They killed her because they know that Key is pregnant, and they want to use the baby as a political statement against the government because Key happens to be black. And is an illegal immigrant. And is an illegal immigrant. So humanity is saved, quote unquote, by, by an, an immigrant, immigrant, which so, is... Which just flies in the face of what the state's been doing. Exactly. And so they they make a comment in the movie somewhere along the lines of, oh, well, if the government finds her, they'll just take the baby away and give it to some rich black posh woman who will say it was hers. And then the government has no... There's no like political unrest. It's just humanity is saved and it's also thanks to the british government <laughs> kind well of and weirdly in the movie it's like i don't know if this is if this is uh, british government propaganda like for this di- this dictatorship essentially that's formed or what it is but essentially the you know only Brit- britain alone soldiers on yeah is the line right like uh anarchy and chaos have come into every other country except britain and you see like you see hong kong burning and washington dc burning and like everywhere seems to be going under except for the uk mm-hmm so there is like a little bit of a smack of like old Britannia kind of feel to the governmental side of the Us movie. against the world, yeah. right? Yeah. So anyway, Theo discovers this plan through some uh, subterfuge of his own, and he plans a daring and uh, like just fucking unbelievable scene, the escape scene from the farm, I think. Like probably, well, the end of the movie is the best scene. But the the escape from the farm, I think, is the second best. Like it's just yeah. so cool how the cinematography of it happens. And the car not going, yeah. and you just feel the mo- yeah. and like and like dawn breaking, and then it's early morning, and it's yeah, just, the birds it's, singing. Oh, oh, it's so yeah. good. Yeah. And so then they get away, and then the whole plan. They go to Jasper's, and. Miriam, the midwife who's with them, has explained that the whole plan Julian had in the first place was to not use Key's baby as a political thing, but like to figure out how to restart humanity regardless of the politics. And the human project is apparently this kind of nebulous group that lives and it operates off the coast of England and they have boats coming around and there's like Julian made a plan with the Tomorrow, which is a boat to pick up Key at this particular time on this particular day and only julian knew about it so because they no, use mirrors or whatever yeah and so they can't contact no so they have to they have to get her key the woman who's pregnant to the coast at this time etc right so they go to jasper's because they need somewhere to hide and figure out their next plan jasper reveals that he has this friend named sid who is a guard at i think it's called bexhill refugee camp on the coast on the eastern coast of england i'm pretty sure it is and so then they they escape. Luke and the fish show up to kill. Well, they end up killing Jasper because they don't care about him, I guess. And he won't give them the information. <laughs> he won't they give want. them the information they want. And they find out in a book where they're going. So Theo, Key, and Miriam, they find Sid. Sid helps them get into a refugee camp. Through a confluence of events, Miriam gets separated from Theo and Key. So it's only Theo and Key left. And we're given the impression that Miriam is basically shot and killed. Yeah. That scene also is so intense, right? Where where she's on the bus and just taken off the bus. It just feels like you would imagine the concentration camps must have yeah, felt there's like. Yeah, there's some, there's some intense fascistic feelings going on in that scene, yes. right? So then Theo and Key get into the refugee camp, and then it's just like, uh, it's like a marketplace of... <laughs> 
po- like poverty basically yeah. like everything's barter everything's it's like, anarchy yeah, there's, it's anarchy there's there's, there's, there's no, no law rule of law there's like just this mishmash of people from all different sorts of ethnicities kind of living together in squalor however uh, sid set up a meeting with this lady named marika i believe who looks eastern european i think the impression is that she's a gypsy yes and so then theo and key go with her she gives them a place it's like really gross and dungy and key is pregnant enough that she's in labor most of this time so she actually gives birth in this room and theo delivers the baby and that's a pretty intense scene too and actually i was watching and i was like is that a real birth because like you do see a baby come out of what yeah. appears to be and i looked it up actually and it was like cgi Really, like that specific part was CGI, which is incredible. That's high because level it CGI. doesn't look CGI. No. It looks like a real baby came out of a real uterus, yeah. basically <laughs> yeah. at that point. And then Marika sees the baby, and she's happy when she comes back. But Sid also comes back because the fish have broken into the refugee camp because they know that's where the baby is or Key is. They don't know that the baby's been born yet. So they need to get away, but Sid wants to now. Sid feels like he's got some collateral if, or some. Uh, he's like, I mean, he value. realizes the value of a first human child born yeah. in oh, almost two decades. Mm-hmm. And so then he's trying to get away, but then Marika and Theo, in one way or another, stop Sid. They get away, but then they get captured again by Luke and Patrick, this other fish guy with the dreadlocks, who's a big asshole. <laughs> and they're about to get killed, but then. They also get, there's just, the, now the army is there to fight the fish. So then there's just chaos, and then the people... Essentially, who, they're in a war zone. They're in a war zone, which allows them some escape, because now Patrick and fish friends have to be shooting at the government, because yeah. the government's shooting at them, because they've got, well, the military, right? What happens is, Luke and Key have taken the, well, Luke has taken Key and the baby somewhere else. Theo finds them, and they're in, like, the third story of a apartment building and there's just guns going everywhere because there's all these freedom fighters shooting against this military and then all of these immigrant refugee populations are in the middle of it but theo finds her and he starts walking key out and the baby starts crying and there's just this fucking incredible scene of everyone has just everyone just stops what they're doing just goes silent just goes silent and watch theo and key walk out of the building and away and it's it's so cool because you see all these refugees staring and loving what they're seeing and just amazed and then it transitions to all of the soldiers the british soldiers who are there and it just was amazing to me how the reaction of the refugees and even and even the freedom fighters and the soldiers are the same so whatever they were fighting about that was different they had the same reaction to a little baby being walked out yeah and then the fighting resumes (laughs) once key and theo and the baby are out of there and they get a boat they go out to the ocean and we it find turned, out that Theo's been shot. Theo's been shot, so he dies in the boat, but not before the Key reveals that she's going to name her little daughter Dylan after Julian and Theo's son. And she said, uh, Dylan, it could be a girl's name too. Yeah. And then he dies right as the tomorrow shows up, and we're led to believe that Key has been rescued with the baby Dylan by the boat, by the human project, Maybe the world can be saved now. <laughs> yeah. So we're, it ends on a really hopeful note. Unbelievably, you it's know? It's a dystopian, scary novel that ends, uh, or sorry, movie that ends on a very hopeful note. And the thing that's so great about this movie is that after about 15 minutes in, it's like tense. 
the, the whole, whole time. time. Yeah. Except for like a couple of like short scenes in Jasper's house when they go back to Jasper's it's house. Like that's their Rivendale, their their moment of peace. Yeah, the moment of peace. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, as you can probably tell by my tone of voice and energy, I love this movie. I I I just really, it's one of the ones that always comes to mind when I think of like, okay, well, what's a great movie that people have seen but you don't talk about as much and this is probably always one of the highest so i don't know what what are your memories of this movie when you first saw it and what do you think about it i think i've always loved dystopian novels because i think they they have a or novels and movies and i think they have a way of getting into this the human psyche in a very special way because they get us thinking about things we would otherwise kind of avoid like our own mortality like human evil, uh, even like uh, Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaiden's Tale* is a great example. *1984*, which we've talked about a lot. *Brave New World*. To me, the genre is one of the best genres because it allows, it makes you, it takes you out of your comfort zone, and I love stories that do that. But with the movie, I didn't find it took me out of my comfort zone as much as reveled in the beauty of movie making the narrative in the book is so rich and and layered and the emotions you feel which we'll get to are just so intense but i've always believed that but but the movie does it does it in a way that only cinematography can and i think what i love about this movie more than anything is it does that thing we've talked about before where it takes what the art form does best and maximizes it. You get startled by things that happen in this movie, like when Julian gets shot. And then there's that beautiful scene in the barn where Key reveals that she's pregnant to Theo. And it's 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 biblical. Like like it's in a barn and <laughs> yeah, there's a pregnant yeah. woman. And Good point. It, there's the imagery that they paint. It's it's like they every Every scene is a canvas, and they paint a masterpiece with the with the camera. Yeah. And I think that's what I love most about the movie is they make you feel things only movies can make you feel that are nostalgically reminiscent of the book. Mm-hmm. It's the feelings of the movie that <laughs> that kind of get to the book it, because the plot and even the characters don't. But yeah. the, the ethos that's created is very P.D. james mm-hmm. Now, this is a feeling I very much feel of between the two, and I want to get your take on it. I actually really liked the book too, but I like the movie more just because maybe I saw it first. Like it has the oh, what's it the the primary bias or whatever psychology bias there is of something you know first you like more kind right. of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I actually really liked the way they made the movie instead because I don't think what happens in the book would have been as good of a movie. Well, that's what as I the mean. way they made think, the movie. I think that's what I'm kind of saying is, but not even just the shots. I mean, also like the story. You couldn't have made the. You couldn't have conveyed the. Um, the same message through cinema that that she does through the novel. Mm-hmm. It's just the the medium doesn't prov- so they so they decided to do what the medium does best. Right. And I think that's what great artists do. There's they, a there's a time crunch in the movie that isn't in the book, right? Yeah. The book is thoughtful and slow and methodical. Yeah. And the movie's like Well, I mean, the entire story of the book takes place over several months, right? Yeah. And the entire story of the movie seems to take place over a few days. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's that kind of race against the clock version of the movie and the frenetic aspect of that that made it so exciting that if it was a, a true adaptation of the book would not have been kind of a thriller, 
like the movie was. You yes. Know? Yeah. And so I think that's smart. When they made this movie, they were like, well, this book is great. It could be a bit and of this, a snoozer and as a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and this so we got to speed it up I think a bit. it's even more than this book is great, although I think they really appreciated the book. This theme is great. This idea is great. It's and let's an incredible run with idea. It in a different way. Because there's something kind of terrifying. Horrifying. Well, unbelievably horrifying. terrifying, right? Yeah. And actually, it reminds me of one of Dan Brown's newer books, Inferno. This I don't think I think in the book, not the movie, the book version, there's like a doomsday virus. The big twist is that everyone thinks that this virus is actually gonna kill half the people in the world, but really it's gonna make half the people infertile. Oh. <laughs> so it's a different version right. of halving the population of well, the planet. In a sense, it reminds me of one of my other favorite dystopian novels, which is uh, Stephen King's The Stand, mm. which totally different, but it's this people trying to live after catastrophe. Yeah. But I think what is unique about Children of Men is the catastrophe is so slow moving. Right in the stand, you know, ninety nine percent of all humanity gets wiped out. Yeah. You know? In nineteen eighty four, the government has taken over everything. Yeah. But in all of those dystopian, it's one that you mentioned, I can't remember for sure, but it seems to me one thing that wasn't lost is the idea of the future. Yeah. Right. But that's what's lost in this dystopian is the idea of the future. Because there's no hope. There is no hope because, like, literally, there's no generations coming up. Yeah. So there is going to be a last person kind of thing. And so, how do you spend your days without a future? And the horror of that, too, right? Of yeah. being, I mean, there's the conception of, well, if no one new is being born, the last generation is going to have to take care of, like, the the sad little needs of mm-hmm. of these dying well, people. The and, thing, and then they're going to die alone. Yeah. There's a primary reaction you have to it, and then what I think is a secondary reaction, at least for me. And the primary one is, oh my gosh, there's no children. There's no one to look out for. <laughs> right? yeah. Like it's the physical non-existence of the children that is, and you and, and that's so well exemplified in the the scenes in the in the school where everything's just gone to shit and it's broken and and all the playgrounds are rusty and actually there's some beautiful imagery of that in the book too like really yeah. beautiful so like that's the primary but then the secondary and maybe more vital even part of it that i was struck by was the idea of okay how much of what i do is actually predominantly so that things can improve for the future and I was like, almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, almost everything I spend my life doing that I feel is important is because of an idea of either myself or someone else kind of benefiting from it in some way, shape, or form. And being in a historical timeline, I look back into history and see how much of it is, how much has happened so that I have a better experience of things than people before me. And then, you know, it kind of galvanizes me into being like, well, how can I help better the experiences of people who come after me? But if that was gone, like if it was, if it was purely like lateral, like I can only benefit people my age or older and that's going to keep shrinking. That demographic is going to keep shrinking. What would I do? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's I think so it would, deep I think it to the be core. Terrifying. Yes, I agree. Right. Like That's... I think of how much I love my niece and nephew, and you know, hope to one day have kids of my own. And it's just, it's very dishearth. I mean, even the thought. I don't know if you get this at all, but you know, I'm 30 years old now. I don't have any kids yet. Now yeah. my dad had me at 30, so you know, there's still lots of hope. But 
I, st- I start to feel like, well, is this it? Like, <laughs> and on just a very individualistic level, but I still have my niece and nephew and like my godkids. And so I still have all these children in my life who I'm right. trying to pour into. But I think on a personal level, there's still that slight trauma of, am I going to be able to to push my, my genetics into the future? I mean, essentially, at the very base level, that's what it is. And as a species, like, I'm, I can't even imagine it. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I, I love what this does to help us imagine it. Yeah, it's a great flesh out, fleshing but out But even it. then, it's still like, oh, this is just a book. But imagine for a moment, like, the catastrophe that you would feel that there's no future for the human species. Like, this is it. Yeah, and, and so then, I guess, philosophically, it really makes me meditate on how vitally important the idea of a future is for people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because it's really the thing that I think makes us not just give into our instincts. Like, why <laughs> right? wouldn't you just be a hedonist if there was no future for, for anything? Like, it's that idea of the of sacrifice, right? Which is so central to our understanding of human... Mental well-being. Yeah, mental well-being. It's you sacrifice the present for the future. You sacrifice yourself. Like, that, that conception of, like, no greater love has a man than this and he lays down his life for his friends Mm -hmm. like there's such nobility in that in our minds but why would you lay down your life for but it's not even in the act it's because that you let people it's like saving private ryan yeah right like tom hanks john miller's character the last thing he says to ryan at the end is earn this right which is why it's so cool that the beginning and the end of the movie is old man Private Ryan being grateful, right? like present day 1998 when that movie came out, laying down your life so that someone else can earn it kind of thing. And it's like, that's a pretty like stark or grandiose example of something like that, right? But there's something so crucial to working towards better days, you know? I don't mean it like in an uh, the unhealthy way of like, you don't, you're not present, you're not enjoying someone. But it's realizing that part of being present and enjoying the moment is because that moment and presence that you're enjoying is actually the reward of a previous endeavor to work towards that future. Yeah. If that makes sense, right? The fact that you and I are right now are enjoying talking about children of men and loving how much of an impact it had on our brains and having this many episodes thus far into our run on Really True Fiction. So this current present is the future of a past moment where we worked really hard to get here. Yeah, where we decided <laughs> this is a thing, where, and then not just where we worked really hard, where but where someone chose to work very hard to create this, not in the case of the movie, to adapt this mm-hmm. and pour millions and millions of dollars into producing art for us. Yeah, But then not only that, even before that, P.D. James sitting down and hammering out thinking a world deeply. yeah it's like that's what a novel is yeah you've created a a mental playground well that's such a good point because you and i have a basically infinite indebtedness to the brains of so many people who made the stories that we talk about right like, we, <laughs> right? like what would we even be talking about and, if it wasn't for these people and i mean i don't want to make it about you and me i feel like there's something in an author or a movie maker or a storyteller who would be pretty happy about the idea of their story being talked about oh how I, many I, years I, later by I somebody that's like what they would love <laughs> yeah. right like and so that sacrifice of us and other people and like that's why 
I don't think it's like a contradiction to talk about enjoying the moment because the moment you and I are enjoying is actually the future moment of some work done in the past. Yeah. Do you know, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so that just is so exciting then to be like, okay, well, how do we do something now to put into the future? And that's why this story is so undermining to like almost the bedrock of human motivation. Yeah. <laughs> because it removes well, the future. Well, life's motivation itself. Like you think about what, on, a, on the most core, like what is driving life? And it's gene- it's genetic reproduction. It's it's the, the continuation of genes. Yeah. Like that's what drives, we're gene bags. Like have you ever heard that? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like we are the vessel for which our genetic, you know, code passes itself on. Sure. And that's the most fundamental biological level you can get to. Like if you break it down to anything more complex than, you know, the atomic structures and yeah. that's it. Yeah. And to question that like this is the beauty of imagination this is the the vistas of which the human mind can create is we can challenge even the most basic assumptions Mm -hmm. and say what would the world be like (laughs) imagine like we can imagine things that are just so crazy and uh, this is obviously super rich because neither you and i have children so we're about to talk about them (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah and what it means to people to have them (laughs) Uh, I was recently talking to a friend who has two young children, and he was pretty burnt out because <laughs> he has two young children. Yeah, right? I like mean, it seems tired, to be no kind sleep. of the, the, the universal on that front. But it's like, okay, the experience, especially of having really young children, is so challenging, or it can be very challenging, right, and tiring and exhausting and, like, every superlative of, you know, energy. Yeah. So why do we do it? Why do we do it forever? And I think it's this movie gets at the heart of why it's like the best thing, actually. Like it creates the most meaning. And it's not like it obviously can go into an unhealthy version of living vicariously through your child. Oh, yeah. And And trying to make your child what you want. Yeah. Parenting can can do. But I imagine that the unarticulated or often unarticulated meaningfulness and substantive meaningfulness of having children is because you know you are giving a part of yourself to the future in a sense and i mean that's like the ethereal maybe philosophical version and which is not doesn't seem to jive with how much like how visceral it is to have your kids around but i think it's part of it you know like i think it's the idea of investing into the future in the way that your present is a future invested in by others. Well, it's a continuation. It's a legacy, right? It's like our parents did it for us. Yeah. We do it for the Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's like paying it forward. The cycle of life. And that's what I would call, and appropriately enough, the human project. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Which is why I think that that is the perfect name for (laughs) the group trying to fight for saving the baby in the movie, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's (laughs) like, what is the human project? That is the human project. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've mentioned to you before that i feel like one of the deepest points of life is to be a good ancestor yes yes in even the, if it's not a you know and there's people who can't be physical ancestors yes. but they can be intellectual ancestors yeah yeah yeah. i don't mean that in the, in the yeah. strictly biological sense like to me my great ancestors are people i don't have any like biological physical relation to, to yeah, you know yeah. like in one sense i mean i very directly owe a lot of gratitude to my biological parents and grandparents and relatives but in another sense i feel a huge debt of gratitude to you know socrates and camus and nietzsche and even like 
artists like Christopher Nolan, you know, like just yeah. all of the all of the authors, authors, writers like George Orwell for sure, like uh, Hitchens, just the people who give you, in one form or another, strength and vitality to pass it on to the next generation. Well, you know? this is an interesting thought experiment actually because I think there's a lot of people who become intellectual progenitive intellectual qualities that they they actually gain a huge following. Like I think of Hayek. Mm. Right on an economic level, he has probably had more influence in the conservative movement. In my and now, to be fair, I have my own biases here, but people like Hayek, Marx, right, right, the ideas can often be far more powerful than anything else. (laughs) Let's go back to Muhammad or or you know Jesus. Mm -hmm. These people have more children. OG memes. (laughs) Yeah, they have more children than anyone. Uh, in the intellectual sense. So there's something truly beautiful about that as well. All right. Start talking about Theo a little bit. I know he's more of like a... He's there because we need someone there. Yeah. <laughs> we need a well, person we, to follow. <laughs> you can't just follow an ethereal idea around a movie. No, no, <laughs> but no. there were a couple things about him that I was really impressed by and I wanted to bring up. So we're introduced to him. One of his earlier quotes is... Or earliest quotes in the movie is, The world was going to shit before infertility. So we're introduced initially to a cynic, or at least someone who plays a good cynic. And it's interesting because he was actually originally a activist. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like a disillusioned activist, right? Which happens to a lot of activists. Yeah, and I and I mean I think I have that actual mentality in a minor key without the cynicism. Like I remember being in my early twenties being very I guess ideological would be the rest right word. I just was, you know, you're in university and you're like, here's how the world should be. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Well, Bleeding. We finally figured it out. Bleeding. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. That, well, that's I, really the, the mindset of the young activist. Right? Well, and I have a joke too that I tell about myself is that I miss being 18 because it was the last time in my life where I knew everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I so, put myself at, yeah, there were, there was a long period. Sure. Too long. Of a well, period. you understand the impulse. Yes, then. so for sure. And so then, like, but now he's gone, like, too far the other way, I think, right? But not really, well, but it, he says, like, he is. He has gone far the other way, but, like, let's think of the the context. I mean, everyone's just trying to deal with this, this massive existential yeah. exclamation mark on their existence. Mm-hmm. So after the scene in the car where Julian gets shot, and then they're at the farm, so what happens was happened was all of these people were chasing them in the car and luke was driving the car and he went in reverse and just backed up really fast for a long time so all the people chasing the car in the forest were running so they eventually got away except two people were on a motorbike and it was actually someone on the motorbike who shot through the windshield and killed julian which was actually the fish's plan all along but it just seemed like some random bandits kind of thing who killed her that night after they'd been at the farm and then Theo had found out Key was pregnant, Theo Clivone was just lying in bed and he hears this motorcycle type noise and all of these loud voices kind of incoherently shouting. <laughs> so he goes and checks it out. He sees the people are dressed in the same clothes as the motorbike of the people who shot Julian and then they take their helmets off and it's actually this Patrick character who we've seen before with the dreadlocks. And so this doesn't add up, right? Like there's just this like incongruency of evidence going on here. And so he sneaks downstairs and all again, all of the filming in this movie is incredible. Just the scenes where you see people, but they like, you see everyone, but they can't see each other kind of it's thing. Per, it's the, it's like, it's like through it's a hallway. It's very good at capturing 
an individual human's perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like what yeah. you would feel like you were seeing yeah. if you were in that context. So what happens is Theo starts, his spidey senses are going off, like something's not right here. So he sneaks to the window outside and he finds out that the fish plan, which is the fish are this politically motivated uprising group who wants to use the baby as their own agenda. He finds out that it was actually them who killed Julian because she wouldn't didn't want them to let she didn't want to use the child yeah. as a, a she wanted political to symbol. Save the baby because that was more important, and they didn't think that was true. It's, it's, it's a, interesting because their ideology essentially took over the future of humanity. Yeah, right? they were more concerned about what was happening to immigrants right now in the present. Yeah, than they were about the continued existence of human humanity in general. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, I mean, there's just again, like every problem i think in the world it stems from a lack of imagination yeah (laughs) so for the fish the lack of imagination was that they couldn't imagine it was a zero-sum game either we use the baby as a political uprising tool or we're doomed (laughs) you know like there was no baby can be saved by the human project and we can still prove our point in a different way no so it was too binary i think right and that's like tragedy that's a huge part of tragedy i think so anyway he finds out their plan he tells key that the fish killed julian her babies for the uprising and he was only able to do this because he paid attention to everything like he's lying in that bed and he hears he hears a voice and he hears a sound and it's just like "Mm, that's kind of weird and then that's exemplified i think in the next in the escape scene so great because while he's he heard earlier that he had to jumpstart the car, so he has to push it down the hill because it won't even start. Yeah. Instead of just going, and this would have been my instinct, okay, get Key, get Miriam, get out of the farm, let's go. No, he still has the presence of mind to pay attention to everything, to go to all of the other cars and either take the keys out of the car or pull cords out of the engine so that they can't work, right? Yes. So in a moment of panic or when you might be panic, he's very calm under pressure. In that, and in that scenario, like the real life thing is, it reminded me of like, oh man, in high pressure moments, it's easy to forget details that will really bite you in the ass if you don't remember. Yeah, them. whereas <laughs> it's like Theo's clinical about it. It's mm-hmm. amazing. So to me, the lesson there is... I mean, it's a cliche. Don't lose your head. Yeah, <laughs> but pay calm. attention to the but details. Not even, but not even like it's an additional step. It's like because of the gravity of the situation I'm in, what would I be missing that I shouldn't if I have all of my thoughts in a row kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And I thought that that was probably Theo's greatest attribute in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and, you, and we see it a few times, actually. Mm-hmm. Like he, he seems to be capable of figuring – things out in a numerous contexts. Yeah. He makes a smart decision and then keeps moving, right? So in the scene where uh Miriam has been taken off the bus and the guard is yelling at Key and Key's water has broken and she's in labor basically and about like, you know, not far from giving birth. Obviously if this fascist guard discovers it, it's all over. And the guard has extra animus because Key is black, and so she, she's an immigrant. And like, yeah. there's just there's no facade of having to be not racist if you're a racist guard, right? No, like, no. and so he's yelling, and Theo's right beside her, and he just points like, "Look, she pissed. She pissed. You don't want to go there, right?" Yeah, like, oh, and so gross. just like at the quickness of his mind to say something that's going to deflect attention based on like, I was blown away by that kind of thing. Like, I don't think I could think of something that fast, and I'm. 
not always averse to thinking quickly about something if need be, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And even with Sid, like, oh, it's a woman thing when he sees all the blood on the bed. So that kind of quick thinking saves Key several times. Multiple times, right? yeah. And he just says everything so so matter-of-factly. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a... It, he doesn't seem worried yeah. or scared. Well, he's because he's like, well, if it, from one of our previous episodes, he's like Michael Clayton in a yeah. war zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I bet you that's probably what Julian recruited him for. Or she partly. knew that he was like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think also because he could kind of get the passes. That was the, probably the biggest thing. Well, like any great way of interpreting art yes. <laughs> or scenarios. There could be more than one thing, right? No, no, true. So like ostensibly, yeah, it could be a, the transit passes but or transfer papers. But obviously Julian knew him really well because she told Key, trust him. Yeah. Like if you're going to, you might. You, you don't, don't trust anyone, just him. Just him. And part of that is her knowing Theo's heart, but also part of his knowing like his quick thinking probably could save her life in a dire yeah. moment. And it did. Yeah. At least twice. <laughs> at least. You know, both at the farmhouse and on the bus. And also, I know this is going to sound weird, but Theo's faith. Right? Because, like, he believes in the human project enough to just row out into the middle of the ocean and hope they show up at the boy. Well, he has faith in Julian. Right. Right? Like, Theo's faith, and and this is why I think it's a beautiful mirror. <laughs> yes. As you mentioned, a beautiful mirror of his cynicism is that he has faith in Julian. He saw her in their life. And so all of his cynicism about people, which is very easy to have creep in, is doesn't not, seem to apply to her. Doesn't apply to her. And I think we've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's like one good attribute in a person is worth a thousand bad attributes in a multitude of people. Right. Do you know, like the the way that you can be motivated by one person you admire or respect or look up to, I think is canceling to just many negative things you might see in a multitude of people. And it doesn't mean that that multitude of people in their own selves are negative or bad. It's just like we all are a mix of positive and negative attributes, I think. And it's, I think attitude determines which of those we show more and mindfulness helps us determine what our attitude is. Yeah. And Julian's attention to her mindfulness of realizing that even though she's had a son who's died, she wants to keep fighting for something better, right? Not just the the political aim of fish, because who knows what that is, even if the immigrant classes in Britain in the movie get their turn in the sun. Yeah. What then, right? Like we still have to figure out a vitality of living after that. And she can see that the more substantive version of that vitality of living involves protecting this pregnant woman into the baby. So we can figure out how to keep the goddamn species going. Right. Yeah. And so all of those little things are what Theo would have learned about her throughout the years they were together. And so because Julian believed in this, he does too. That's my explanation for why I think Theo buys in. I mean, obviously, like, I think we're he, extrapolating. But also when he sees, you know, this is actually the hope of, mm-hmm. of of humankind. Well, I mean, you could abstract it to whatever level you want. It's like, he buys in because Julian bought in on him knowing that he would buy in when he saw her. Right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> right? It's so, like, it's like... Chicken or the egg. Chicken yeah, or the egg. Yeah, right? chicken or the egg. But also, like, in a good sense, like, chicken or the egg of, like, this little piece. It's like scaffolding. You have to put this piece in before this piece, before this piece, before this piece. But every 
part is vital, even if it has to happen in a specific order. In a specific order, yep. <laughs> like you can't have the entire, you can't get to the roof without oh. every piece, even though it has to come in different times. Right, yeah. You know? I don't know, like that's what was so cool is that, yeah, like Theo does die a hero. Absolutely he yes. does. And he's just a normal dude. Yeah. You know, with a good head on his shoulders and a softness in his heart. That's yeah, that's if only we <laughs> if only we talked about that before. <laughs> hey everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. All right. Jasper is a good friend looking up for him, which is very different from the book. Yes. (laughs) There's a scene early in the movie where... It's so we're introduced to Jasper. Theo has gone and visited him, and he tells this one joke, which is a stork joke, right? Yeah. And it's like uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's it's basically there's two people. One of them's eating something. The other one's just like so sad about all the children being <laughs> all gone. The, all the children being gone. And it's like, why do you think the children be? It's like a group of people, right? And they're like, why do you think they're gone? Why do you think they're gone? And they <laughs> talk to the third guy. He's like, why do you think they're gone? And he's like, well, I'm not sure. But doesn't this stork taste great? Yeah. <laughs> now, given the context of the world they live in, that is a very dark yeah. joke, right? <laughs> they're, they're making light of their most serious problem. existential problem. And yet, I got a kick out of it because I think dark humor gets a bad rap. Or gallows humor, whatever. Like, the jokes that we tell to ward off the despair of a despairing situation. Do you yeah. know? Yeah. And how to laugh in that. And I mean, I, I maybe I've mentioned it before, but Nietzsche has a great line. It's like, humans are the only animal that suffers so greatly that they had to invent laughter. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and that's a good example of it, I think, that scene. Yeah, that's a great, a great example. Yeah. So I, I like that dark humor aspect. But then I loved also that story that he was telling Key and Miriam that Theo overheard. About him. About him and how him and Julian met. And it was like the faith versus chance kind of part of life. And everything is a battle between faith and chance. Yeah. yeah. And it was a very short part of the movie, but basically it was like, well, it was chance that made Julian and Theo meet at a rally, but it was their faith in the cause that made them be there even in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and just that interplay, I think, is like it's something that you would never have an answer for, right? Because it needs the other all the time to be dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> that was what was really cool about it. You know, it's like, is it faith or chance that made this happen? It's like, well, it's actually probably both. <laughs> and I, it was cool. And then just Michael Caine as Jasper is so great. When he stays behind to help them escape. The pull my finger. The pull my finger. And actually one of the, like, so there's there's this thing in the book 
called quietus and in the book it's like drowning it seems like yeah right in the movie it's just like it's this drug you take yeah. this pill and it's basically like euthanasia but like self-induced euthanasia kind, and of, it's kind of ritualized yeah ritualized point, yeah. and so in the movie or sorry in the book jasper's wife does it to herself and then in the movie she's kind of incapacitated and mentally out of it so he helps her with it because he knows the people coming are going to kill him right yeah and so the perspective that jasper gave on like the kind of meditative part of this movie was so cool so i, I wanted to get you your thought a bit on jasper and his part of the movie the idea of the eccentric is i think r- captured really well by him right like the kind of the old revolutionary right you, you know you could just kind of tell that jasper always was annoyed by the <laughs> inconsistencies in mm-hmm. civilization and always felt like he's a little bit apart from those things the movie jasper and i like people like that i was talking to a friend recently and i was like why do we always end up hanging out with these these people that are so troubled for whatever reason and he looked at me and he said and it was one of the my more profound life moments is he just like they're the most interesting ones yeah and my theory on that is because the eccentric because they're less concerned with appearances and keeping up appearances are more likely to tell you what they really think about something and and, the, and that level of trust that they because there's there's always a veneer on social interaction mm-hmm. where it's like well you know we gotta gotta get along or you know go along to get along, right? Whereas the eccentric doesn't care if they piss people off, which actually adds flavor mm-hmm. to who they are. And, like, we know this from Jasper. He doesn't care. I mean, his idea of a joke is to call Sid a, a fascist pig, yeah. which I guess Sid kind of is, it turns out. But that friendship is built off of the authenticity of essentially mm-hmm. Jasper calling him out for what he is, but not hating him for it. Not saying that we shouldn't hate fascists. (laughs) Right, right, yes. (laughs) But again, to make a joke of a serious thing is part of the crumbling of the veneer. Yes. You know? And so I think for someone like Jasper, what what I appreciate and enjoy is that for him, the whole idea of public relations is actually kind of just a synonym for an agreed upon lie by everybody. And it's not that he wants to fight against that exactly. It's not like he rages against it and loses sleep. It's just he would find that boring. He has a subtle rebellion against it. And that subtle rebellion is a refusal to generalize. I think that's really what I love about him is he individualizes people. And I think the best thing you can do in loving other people is to individualize them. Yeah, and I wonder though, like... And this, is, this could just be a, a minor semantic quip. My instinct is it's not as much a subtle rebellion against that kind of agreed upon lie that social interaction has with people. To me, it's a subtle transcendence of it. Yeah. Where, okay. where he, is, it's not like, oh, this is stupid and I'm going to point it out. It's that he doesn't even, it, he doesn't acknowledge it in the first place. Right. So he lives as if there's no <laughs> veneer. Yeah, He lives as if there's no public relations that is actually just a code term for an implication and an inference that we kind of know, but we also kind of don't know. And we share this lie and we don't really try to offend anyone who's we assume needs to be paternalized or yeah. patronized yeah. too, right? Yeah. So all of that aspect of it, it's not that Jasper says, here's what it is and I'm going to rage against it. He's like, he doesn't even acknowledge it in the first place. Right. He's like, that's. But it's not like he's thing. so dumb to not know it's not there. No. Right? He just lives as if it isn't. And 
that I think has more sustainability to it because listening to him talk, there's no way you can't think Jasper is very, very smart. Right. 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 However, someone that smart with that little concern of social conversational mores, you have to know they're doing it on purpose, even if they never reference it. Yeah. And I think the person who does that doesn't reference it, not because they hate it, but because they think it's boring. And that's an even deeper reason to not acknowledge it. Right, because well, why, you know, life <laughs> you know? is short, time is precious. I mean, you think, like, the, the he loves, I mean, we hear Ruby Tuesday, so Rolling Stones, like, there's classic rock. So how he is interested in interesting things. And interesting things are bound to offend some, if not many, people. Of course. <laughs> right? Because if they're and interesting, it means that they, they don't fit into a generalized paradigm. Exactly. And a lot of people need generalized paradigms in order to function. Or so or they it think is they maintained. Do. Or they think they do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, anyway, all of that is to say that Jasper has no time for that. And I think that's exactly what makes him interesting. Yeah. You know? And, that's, and I think maybe that is what could be a necessary feature of what we call the eccentric. You know, and now maybe, or maybe like the self-aware eccentric. You know, maybe there right, are people there's who probably are eccentric are eccentrics who aren't, aren't self-aware. Yeah, like I wonder if Doc Brown. I mean, no, I, we'll talk about Back to the Future later. I think he's probably a self-aware eccentric, but he could be a more borderline case. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. So anyway, that's Jasper. Sid, fascist pig, always talks about himself in the third person. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. Hey, Key and Sid are the two, as it were, key characters in the movie that aren't in the book yeah jasper is their connection to sid yeah which was important in the movie because they needed a way to have uh, a way into the refugee camp so anyway i made a several notes on secondary characters in the book and the first one i made on is in the book or in the movie uh, sorry in the okay. movie i'm i made notes on several secondary characters in the movie and the first one i did is very near the movie it's right or near the beginning and it's right after we find out baby Diego, who is the world's youngest person at age 18 in whatever months, has died. And Theo goes to work, and one of his desk mates is crying over baby Diego. So I'm going to court a little controversy here by airing one of my other pet peeves about the world. Okay. <laughs> you know what this reminded me of the most? Is when Princess Diana was died. Okay. In the movie, this desk mate is in tears. Right? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like her child has died. And I'm in the note of people outsource their life meaning to others. And I'm going to give you a little anecdote of what I mean in okay. one sense yeah. here. I remember several years ago, I was just standing at a till. I think it was at London Drugs. And you know, at the till, they have all the tabloids, right? Yes. Yeah. This sounds like it's made up. But it's, it happened exactly this way in this like time frame even. I'm standing there and I'm looking and there's some headline and it was about Judge Judy, right? It was like, Judge Judy, blah, 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 or Judge Judy hates this person or is in love with this person or is sleeping with this person. I can't remember exactly, but it was about Judge Judy. But it was so inane, right? right. Like just so inane. And I remember having a specific thought being like, who the fuck cares about Judge Judy? <laughs> about Judge Judy. Not, not 10 seconds later. The lady behind me is like, Judge Judy did what? And there was no hint of irony or sarcasm. <laughs> she grabs a tabloid and just starts reading. And I'm like, oh, okay. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's why. That's the person. So anyway, the more controversial point I would make is that, okay, I understand that some people outsource their meaning into the lives of others. I think that is 
severely unhealthy. And I don't think, here's the controversial point. I don't think we do our loved ones any favors if we don't call them out on stuff like that. So I don't think people who cry over Princess Diana dying as if it was their own child are doing themselves any favors. And I don't think we're doing them any favors by not pointing out that it's weird to be this upset about someone dying who you don't know. Hmm. And I, I know that that might be a slight gap of thinking between you and me, which is why I brought it up. I like so I want to get your okay, thoughts on okay. it. See, yeah, I don't think I agree at all. I think I think people need heroes. And I think that you become emotionally attached to your heroes, not because they're actual people, though they may be, or they often are. Mm. You get attached to them because they are guiding lights, perhaps, for your sense of meaning. They're They're... The way I think of it is the Catholic idea of the saints, right? What is the purpose of having the saints? A lot of people are like, oh, Catholics worship the saints. No, not really. What Catholics do is Catholics say, here are exemplary individuals who have lived lives that could can be used as a roadmap. But we understand that there are a myriad of different ways to live a good life, and that's why there's a myriad of saints. And... The nice thing about the saints within the Catholic context is that you get to look at different lives and like you will probably find one that reminds you of yourself. Hmm. And then therefore you can begin to emulate that individual. Now, going back to, let's say, Princess Diana. There's a whole bunch of things going on here, right? <laughs> There's One is the royalty, sure, right? So people love the royalty. What is the royalty? It's a symbol. It's literally a symbol. That's, that's his entire purpose for being now used to be different used to be a kind of a, a container for power though as we record this with the harry and megan yes. scenario it could be a symbol crumbling could be although this isn't the first time that people have abdicated for love like sure. think of um the queen's uh, but it's uncle. the first time that it's happened in the age of social media true so true. that could add a whole anyway continue there will definitely be uh I think there'll be controversy, but I, I have faith in the royal family to, to soldier on. <laughs> but my point is that these symbols give us meaning in the same way that any symbol would. Right? Like, you may not have... Were you upset when Hitchens died? Not exactly. Not Not really, no. I mean, I was disappointed that he wouldn't be around to do more books speaking engagements, but the thing that he gave the world was already there. Maybe part of it is fortunate that it was captured in, like he lived long enough into the age of YouTube to be all yes, over to be YouTube. Able to do that, yeah. And I, my access to him was so great. But then that access is what gave me the knowledge of him in the first place, for the most part, to even be missing him when he was gone. Right. But even you just saying what you just said made me realize that this is actually a much more layered problem i think than i just even gave it description of right because <laughs> right. when you're talking about this catholic saints i'm like yeah okay that's that makes sense like there's a there's a logic there i mean even if i would prefer to jettison the appreciation of people with exemplary lives out of catholicism because sure. i think it comes I mean, with enough baggage that's just an example sure yeah yeah right Fair like enough. i would say that you know hitchens there's there's a pantheon so of, of the atheists i think right? maybe then what i'm talking about is not so much it's not that i say hey don't have heroes although i think that that's there's a there's a problem with heroism even because it can make you worship or care about something 
something that used to be venerable but then isn't anymore or it could have degenerated and then I mean, this is, again, maybe semantic, but I think it's useful to have slightly different terms for slightly different attitudes about something. So what I say about Hitchens is I don't actually see him as a hero of mine. I see him as a Promethean of mine. Right. There are things he did that gave me fire. Yeah. Right? And there are things that he did that I think are not life-giving. Right. (laughs) Like, I don't think you should smoke and drink yourself to an early death. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or like, you're... Loading the dice. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm. I don't think you need to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day no. to be a Promethean. No. Right? And so I'm just saying, I think it's useful to point out maybe a difference between an appreciation of one or two or three tools a person gave you and then like a hero, which I think connotes worship, which I'm trying to be mindful of words used to figure out how I actually mean about something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So anyway, all of that. Yeah. Some, some of the saints, regardless of whether or not any specific saint has earned their moniker. Yeah, like looking up to people who lead exemplary lives. Like to me, the, a great modern version of that would be Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., right? Sure, Like yeah, someone exactly. who fought for civil rights nonviolently and with an encompassing message based on character, not outward identity features. Yeah, yeah. Or even self-proclaimed identity features. He was not about identif- identity politics. He was literally, we need to right. beyond identity politics. So what I think I'm really critiquing which is good. This is why you have dialectic. So you get more narrowed in on your actual critique. I'm actually critiquing the worship of people who don't deserve it. Right. <laughs> I guess you're saying that about Diane. I, I think, Princess Diana. Uh, well, okay, we'll stick for, we'll first talk about Diego in the movie. Cause I think it's a better example, right? Right. Diego is the world's youngest person. That's his accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's a form of fame thrust upon him. Now the very short, exposition we get about diego is that he's an asshole he flipped off a fan or he he yeah he was rude to a and fan he never really recovered from this fame that from he the, right. was unearned so we could talk about the tragedy of unearned fame and to a person with a young mind and how that can mess them up fair enough like i'm not going to hold diego too heavy handed but like he was an asshole he did something really rude to a fan and that's why the fan killed him right like crazed fans i mean Mark Chapman, the guy who killed John Lennon, was a fan. Well, (laughs) people are crazy who are fans also, right? Fanatic. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Yeah. So anyway, for one reason or another, baby Diego didn't deserve his fame because he was actually a stand-in for a symbol. Right. Like he was the physical instantiation of the world's youngest person in a world that couldn't have babies anymore. So he, yeah, so it he had really famous, but he had, it had nothing to do with yeah, him, yeah. right? Nothing to do with his achievement, his brain, his thoughts about the world, or anything he made, right? Yeah. And maybe that's what I'm saying isn't worth worshiping. That's fair, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Now with Diana, I don't know as much about her. I know that she had good public relations slash a nice stance on trying to get rid of landmines like that's as she's, far as i know in her public life that's probably the most laudable thing she did she's very um very focused on charity sure like, it was her big kind of thing. well that, and that's great like to the extent that it was a good they using good her charities. fame to promote charity is yeah. really what it now to the extent of. that that was true and substantial that's awesome right and i'll leave it about that on the charity but like if you think about how she died fleeing paparazzi probably all intoxicated in a tunnel yeah. uh, with a f- with a guy of a family that had questionable morals <laughs> when it came to their interactions in yep. the world, right? And then I don't think her memory was hurt by the fact that she was very beautiful. Right. And right. so, honestly, 
maybe this is the difference between you and me again. I am not very impressed with the idea of royalty. Right. <laughs> uh, and so that could just be a personal bias where I'm like, she's really only famous because she was a princess. Yeah. Right. And she's only a princess because she married into the institution that I think is intellectually bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's even, fair. even as a symbol, you know, at heart, I am a Republican and not in the American partisan sense, but just in the governmental yes, <laughs> yes, uh, democratic yeah, sense. Yeah. And so I think the royal family is at best an unnecessary antiquity. Right. And I think the kind of people who would worship the royal family are the kind of people who go crazy over what or who Judge Judy is sleeping with. <laughs> Maybe. And Maybe. that's who the deskmate was in the... Yes, in the scene in the after scene. the death of Diego. Yeah. And now, I want to make it clear. I don't think I am superior to these people. I think that I would challenge them on their premises for their particular, for their, particular attachments emotions, yeah. to this specific issue. Yeah. In a way that maybe they could do to me on others. Right. Like that's how I feel justified in being kind of hard-nosed about this specific thing. Because <laughs> I right. don't actually think in the long run, hero worship of, as it were, people who don't deserve it is healthy. Right. Psychologically. Well, because, yeah, what's it going to give you? Nothing. It's like it's like fast food. Yeah. And, and 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 who knows what mental energy is not going into the people actually physically around you in your life yeah. if it's going into these ideas of things. And so yeah, I would want to differentiate that from what you're talking about substantially is like, I guess, people who deserve it or people who've earned yeah. inspiration, like a saint might. I mean, that's the don't, whole idea of the saints. Yeah. Don't right. equivocate on what would count as a saint i mean that's well they, that's moral that's philosophy can, that's, that's ethics law, right? <laughs> right that's i mean i brought up dave grohl before like he's someone i yes. find laudable however considering he's about 20 years older than me if i'm alive when dave grohl dies i'll be very sad but i won't be destroyed right, right? because the things that dave grohl has given me but that that are, also might be in your case a personality you know there's some people are just more sensitive than other people and like that's true. things impact them more but i think the whole one of the whole motivations of a podcast like this and even just talking about big ideas in general is that people can change their minds. Yes. Like it's not uh, personality isn't destiny. No, but I, I do think that, that your emotional reaction to, to something, a lot of that. Okay. That's a fair point. A lot of it is determined by your approach to life mm. and your, and the thoughts that you put into why you're feeling certain things and you know, self-awareness sure but i do think that there are people who are more sensitive than other people just like there are more there are people who have a better sense of hearing than other people right yeah i guess then i would just ask at the very least that people are aware of their own attachments when they indulge in them yeah i think the issue that i would have is not someone being upset about something but then someone punishing another person emotionally because they're in a bad mood because something happened Sure. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. Which I want to get into on the book because right. at the beginning of the book, it's always very clear on that. But then I wonder also then for like, forget anyone in real life, the desk mate, you know, do you remember the woman I'm talking about yes, in the oh movie, yes, right? Yeah. Was she self-aware of the fact that she never met baby Diego and he was just an idea to her while she was missing him? Like, I don't think so because I don't think you could have that emotional of a reaction okay, here, to someone who's inspiring here. you as an idea. I have something that I think, so tragedy. So let's say 9-11, right? Did I know anyone who died in 9-11? No. Do I know anyone who participated in any way, like firefighters, any of that? No, I don't know anything. But because it was such a sociological phenomenon, I have emotions about it. 
I remember how I felt. Sure. Shock, fear. I remember those feelings. And those feelings had nothing to do with me knowing mm-hmm. the people involved. It was the broader implications of something like that. And so maybe she wasn't crying because Diego died. Yeah, I was just maybe thinking that too, Maybe it's actually. a big... It's it's a kind of a slap in the face, cold water moment where you're like, we can't have children. It's, it's a, she could yeah. be weeping because I can't have children. It could it could have you know it could have triggered right. something much deeper. And I think maybe when we're seeing this happen in the movie, it's not that they really care about Diego. It's a Diego represented something. Mm-hmm. That is a, that is a very optimistic and not implausible interpretation of her behavior and i will grant you that that's fair that could be it and i mean yeah you you bring it out to enough of a macro scale in that sense that could have been her specific motivation i didn't get the sense of that just the kind of way it was all set up like it seemed like baby diego was a big deal to her Mm -hmm. in the way that tabloid news seems to be a big deal to people who probably my submission or hypothesis would be uh, maybe people who don't think a lot about why tabloid news is a big deal to them. Okay, I get, and this might be because we have different approaches to our lives on a, let's say, a employment scale. But like, for example, politics is all about this kind of stuff. Like, who's supporting this person? And what have they done? What did they say? How is that going to impact how other people view them? Right. Like in a sense, it's all so, it's all tabloids, right? Just there's <laughs> yeah, not yeah, public, yeah. not most. I've also gotten that sense. Most of them aren't published, you know, on the front pages of a obviously tabloid, but they're maybe on the Globe and Mail, right? Like, oh, this Shots is fired. this is what McKay said, right? Or you know, yeah, news itself, especially when it comes to politics, is kind of like some great. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, it's theatrical. Mm-hmm. People like to watch politics because, I think for two reasons. One, because it's interesting to think about all the, the di- dynamics, who's going to be the leader, who's going who's gonna to win this competition. But there's also mm-hmm. a deep underlying significance to everything that's happening because it means this is going to be the per- this right. is the person who could potentially be in charge of the country or who is in charge of the country. But it's it's very gossipy (laughs) yeah no and i understand that and i understand that facet of human nature too i guess i don't know i mean this is a really big topic and a big problem in one sense so i'm trying to think of your 9-11 example obviously and i think this is what happened the the shadow side is that it's easy for people with power to use people's emotions, like you're saying, for their agendas yes. one way or the other, yes. right? And I think we saw that maybe with the overreaction, maybe, of the American political establishment after 9-11 and what it was able to do and rot for the next several years, and maybe even certainly like the Patriot living, Act. Certainly if you're living in <laughs> Iraq, you don't right? feel... Uh... Now, I guess I am interested in the third path, kind of thing where something like a 9-11 happens and you have all of the normal human visceral reactions both of the terror of what happened and the idea that is being attacked right like the the two the dual front terribleness of what happened in 9-11 but i think thinking about it in a way that I would advocate with as much as possible in the front of our minds and our consciousnesses to not overreact 
is what makes it healthy so that it doesn't go too far in a different direction and keeps you kind of grounded, like a kind of stoicism, not so that you don't feel things, but so you don't make bad decisions when you're feeling things. Right. You know, because who knows what kind of bad decisions can result from hero worship or yes. well we know or cult we, we of know. personality worship right like who knows who you're who you're keeping out of your life if you're so focused on one person who you don't even know the sadness that can come from being obs- obsession like you don't need me to explain why obsession no. can be bad no. for people no and so maybe you and I are getting at from different angles a core of like well what is the healthy level of appreciation for something else that you would go spend your attention on it (laughs) you know i think that's an interesting question i think so much of human history like too often in my mind we see ourselves as individuals when we're really we're communal creatures and the sociology around that is significant hierarchy is significant Mm. our understanding of place and purpose and mission and meaning are, are not tied up in i wonder now I, I really do wonder because i don't have the same intuitions as you about collective versus individualistic i wonder if that might be part of it because i actually don't think we're too individualistic i think we could use being a little bit more individualistic not in the well, I, pushing I, other people away sense but in the way of thinking for ourselves sense I actually think I am inspired by the idea that everyone can think for themselves. Not that they do. But I guess they can. I guess you're yeah, <laughs> I, I I understand they can, but I, I I just don't see it happening. I just don't think that's how it happens and those are glorious beautiful moments. And those mm. are the again, when we were talking earlier about individualizing someone. Right. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. And I think that's how true friendships are born right like friendships of the mind yeah when you're the eccentric interacts with the eccentric and suddenly it's like oh right we are we are loving the individual in one another Mm. however that is a micro level psychological phenomenon Mm. and i think we do ourselves a disservice by not understanding that there's a there's an elevator of existence that humans ride up and down right we are equally the ant colony and the polar bear, right? right. The polar bear is a, is a ruthlessly individualistic creature that essentially just travels around all by itself mm. and does its hunting and, and lives a life of solitude. And the ant is completely, you can't, can't be disconnected from the colony right. or it very quickly dies. <laughs> and I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't see ourselves as weirdly a creature that bridges those that gap mm-hmm. but is equally influenced by both yeah i mean i don't know exactly how to phrase it other than i it, i mean it's, it's this is going to be a biologically inaccurate analogy but i think what i feel about the world is call out the polar bear in everyone and then when that happens the polar bears will remember the ant part of them as well and choose it of their own volition. Hmm. That's a lot of optimism. Yeah, but I don't think it's, well, <laughs> it's a goal worth shooting for in the future. Right. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. And I think that it's, um, 
I really, really deeply dislike to actually abhor paternalism. Like to me, that's one of the world's worst traits. It's something that just every ounce of it rubs me the wrong way because I really feel a vibrant connection to the idea of bringing out the best version of everyone's brain and mind. And that's my goal, you know, and I'm not unrealistic in that. I think everyone can be the best version of themselves at any given time, but there's no chance of it happening if I don't try or someone doesn't try. Not just me. I don't just mean me. Like I'm not going to assume an inability to meet at a high level. I'm going to let it be demonstrated. And to me, that's a fundamental difference of approach. Sort of. I think some problems just can't be addressed as an individual. Like you, there are things you cannot do by yourself. No, but again, a biologically inaccurate analogy, but there would be more things that could be done by polar bears working together than ants working together. Because ants are just not as big. <laughs> yeah, but they're the most su- su- successful like we're, we're, organism to me, on to, Earth. Yeah, I know, but I mean, a stand-in, like obviously not literally what polar bears or ants do, but like bigger presence yeah. working together as opposed to smaller presence working together yeah. or more hive-minded kind of thing. So anyway, that <laughs> that went a bit longer than I thought, <laughs> yeah. but it's interesting, right? It like It's a deep topic. It's yeah. a very deep topic about like how you approach treating other people in terms of what you can realistically expect out of them. And that's deeply philosophical. So anyway, actually, this is also very deeply philosophical. Next point. So Theo's cousin, I guess in the movie, his name is Nigel, and he's a minister. So he's of political import. And near the end of their time together, Theo asks him, well, how do you deal with all of this? Like basically the elephant in the room of children going away and dying. Like, yeah. How do you deal with all of that? His quip is, I just don't think about it. <laughs> and I made the note of, well, that's kind of like just the state of death in general, isn't it? Like how do people, yeah, they don't. in a sense, our demise is always there. And I mean, when Hitchens was dying, here's, an, here's a very arresting thing Hitchens always said to me. Or not to me, he said, and it struck me. Because when he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, well, first he'd make the joke that there's no stage five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is his sense of humor and that dark humor again of you know, living with a horrible thing. But, you know, what can you do? is he would say, there was a question like, well, how does it feel to be dying? And he's like, well, I could ask you the same question, <laughs> right? Yeah. He's just like, I yeah. just think about it a little bit more maybe. <laughs> because it's more imminent. <laughs> right? Yeah. So in the sense, it's like, we're never more than a breath away. Yeah. There's things that can just strike at any moment. And so our defense mechanism psychologically is just to not think about it, right? To think about our day and then our week and then our because when we work there's a there is a deep existential terror there right that we just don't want to address so here's a question then because i think that's kind of well understood if brought up what would be different do you think in your life or people you know or your interpretation of people in general if death was more on the forefront of people's minds every day what would be different about people? I think it has been. Okay. In the past. I think that uh, in the past, death was thought about a lot more. 
because it was way more common, common and and more imminent. Always mm, interesting. So right? that so would mean like something our technology a, and medication and yeah, hospitals. It's put a it's put a veil between us and death. Yeah, it's, interesting. It, it yeah, separates us from. That's death. That's a really good point. It sanitized death. Mm, yeah, right. Like hospitals have sanitized death. It's you know it's it's clean. Right, you, it's quickly dealt with. Mm-hmm. It's not in your face, like sure. your yeah, your, yeah, yeah. your grandma isn't dying, you know, in the room next door. <laughs> yeah, your your mom hasn't, you know, had three stillborn. You haven't births. had three of your siblings die exactly. in front of you. Like we have created a world in which it's much easier to ignore than it ever. You couldn't ignore death when your little brother was dying of smallpox, sure, or your little sister was, you yeah. Know, Died in childbirth at 15 years old, right? Of course, yeah. Men would have three or four wives because that was just normal because they would just die in childbirth. Like, like that's nuts. But that was just reality. Mm-hmm. So I think they thought about it a lot more. What did society look like more? It was a it was a far more religious society. Why? Because you couldn't ignore it. Yeah, and you needed and you wanted an answer, but you still had the same kind of brains that needed symbols, right? Exactly, right. So I think when we think about death more. The other thing that I think happens is twofold. One, that that increasing thought about death can become a rallying cry for evil. Sure. Because it's, well, if you don't do this, if if you can convince someone that they're going to be eternally punished and they actually believe that, that is going to be the driving force of your life. Especially when death is more prevalent. Yes, when when you're interacting with it a lot more. So that's one. But two... On the positive side, because I believe that these things are almost never one-sided, you're going to feel a deeper attachment to your community, Mm, right? And you're going to think less as an individual because you know the inevitability of your own demise. Mm. It's confronting you constantly. Right. So it's like, well, how do I love one another? Right, right, right. How do I look out for my neighbor? Mm. Because I'm probably going to need my neighbor to look out for me (laughs) in a much deeper way. Yeah. So I think the negative impact can be that it can create zealot, fanatic, religious adherents whose answer to death becomes the driving force of their entire existence. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, Not but, to mention all the physical misery. Yeah. And the physical <laughs> misery was much more prevalent just in general with the lack of technology that we had. But that physical misery brought meaning. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so that's that's a good point. Like, it was more historically. And so then maybe in, you know, and I mean, we're probably talking in our, and this and this is a vibrant version of the term, like, in our privilege of living in Canada in yes. 2020, death is not as prevalent because of all of the technological and medical advancements and sanitation advancements. And obviously, that's not everywhere in the world right but If you now. live in the Congo. Exactly, exactly. So I... I think that what you're describing, that separation of death has given modern Western humans a less tragic view of life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, But is it, I guess the question that I ask is, is it less tragic because life is less tragic or have we just sanitized the tragedy? Uh, I, you know, I don't particularly like... <laughs> the we <laughs> there, right. you know, like, yeah, I think maybe culturally we have, not we, like, culturally, it's more, you're not going to tell really stark, gross stories about the human death condition, right? No, it's just culturally not really acceptable. But I do think it's 
there's a huge price to be paid for it not being really part of our vernacular. And I think the the tragedy of that is the inability to deal with it when it happens because it's inevitable. Oh, you know happen. what, dude? You totally anticipated me there because I I remember a few years ago being at a funeral and everyone, you know, kind of like there's a deep sadness because you do miss the person, you miss your relationship with them. But then everyone kind of gets a little meditative and philosophical and reflective, right? Like this is just kind of like when it's socially acceptable to be this way about yeah. death. And I just remember thinking like, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> no. It's not it's not healthy to just have it only be acceptable to talk about when it's happening, <laughs> right? Like that's, we don't really do that with any other topic. No. <laughs> because no. we want to educate more. Like it's a form, there's almost like a, it's a weird term, but it's like there's a lack of death education in our culture. Yeah. And so because it's not something we talk about when it's not happening, it kind of catches us off guard and we're just bereft of conversation when it does happen because we don't really know what to do. And I mean, you could talk about this and other things. Like I think one of, one of the huge problems people have with sex is that they don't talk about yeah. it until it's happening. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, bah. and then all of the emotions and the psychological defense mechanisms and the weird physical sensations are just overwhelming. And then <laughs> mistakes happen Yes, <laughs> and yes. bad decisions and, or whatever right i think there's a weird correlate here with death where that suppression of not thinking about it at least in moderation makes it even worse than it has to be when it does come around i think that's an incredibly wise insight and it's not like i am i don't romanticize the past i feel it's important to figure out what was done well in the past that we're not doing as much now yeah right and that's different than saying, hey, we need to go back to, to 1550. No, we, yeah. I don't <laughs> yeah. think anyone wants to go back no, there. No, no, no. Like, but there were things they had to deal with that brought them a wisdom, I think, that we just don't have right now. There are ways that humans have dealt with death that they still do. Yeah. And the biggest one is alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like, that's <laughs> how we deal with death. Like, let's be honest. That is more powerful than any well, religion and many in other that problems. sense. <laughs> yeah. That's how we but deal yes. with a lot of yeah, our problems. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know. This is, again, this is like almost too big of a topic to exhaust here. If anybody listening has any thoughts on this, this is actually a very central interest of mine because I think it runs one of the deepest. Actually, one of my favorite phrases that I'm just going to toss out there and that Mm. I would love to hear from listeners is, (laughs) breakups are death practice. Ooh, interesting. And I don't want to discuss it. I just wanted it to be out there in the world. All right, you got a deal. Okay, key. I loved her. Like, she was probably my favorite character in this movie, was the pregnant woman, Key. So when she reveals her pregnancy, it's not a big dramatic thing. And this is kind of a movie thing, but it's also a key thing where the beats in this movie are just kind of normal. You know, in movies, like this is a narrative movie making thing, often things that are more important to the plot or the story get magnified. Like the shot changes, it's a part of the object, it's a huge focus, jump scares even, like things huge parts of the story get you see them coming yeah. right but the major plot developments of this movie happen stylistically similar to the things that aren't major plot developments yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. and i love that it's not like it's like a home video <laughs> version no. but the way that theo finds out that the fish are the bad guys or like to us the people who killed julian and are going to use key it's just kind of normal filming and he just overhears a conversation. Like he's just been walking around 
previously. There's no, there's movie, no right? dramatic effect on it. There's no like dun 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 dun. I'm pregnant from Key. It's just like boop. Here it is. Yeah, just standing here. And like that's obvious. Like that's the biggest change yeah. in the mentality of Theo and everyone in the movie. And yet it just kind of happens. And I love how that movie part kind of mirrors Key, her character, because there's a few other things I made uh, a sense where it's like near the end of the movie. Theo asks, how's the baby doing? And in an annoyed voice herself, he's like, annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) She's very sassy, but it's like normal. But it's during a war zone. Like Guns are going off. But Key has been sassy this whole movie. So why should she not be sassy? I know. uh, My favorite joke that Key does in the movie is she, he's like, so who's the father? And she just looked, she's like, there is no father. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm a virgin birth. She's got such a good sense of humor, (laughs) doesn't she? Like just, and there's a twinkle in her eye when she says it. And at first Theo's like, yeah, well, and like, then she's like, I "No, mean, I'm just fucking with yeah, you." I actually don't know. It could yeah, be many could. different men. <laughs> Nobody warned me about pregnancy like <laughs> yeah, that exactly. again. It was so contextualized within the world. It's like no one's worried about me getting pregnant because yeah. like that doesn't happen anymore. So I wonder what that would do to jealousy. Do you think that would change jealousy? Nah, I think I think genes are well. Genes are pretty hardwired in, yeah. but I I think it would it might not change intuitive or impulsive jealousy, but I think it would change reflected jealousy, maybe a little. Anyway, that's yeah. a whole different topic. So anyway, the whole movie, she's sassy. So why shouldn't she be sassy when there's a war going on? Yeah. Too, you know, like, like, I just, that's I her personality. That, I thought that was so cool. But there were two major parts about her that I wanted to bring up too, where she has a quote, I feel the baby kick and I felt alive. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, like, I kind of, it's one of the things that makes me the most sad about being a man. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's it. But I never get to, I'm never going to get to experience the actual gestation of life. Well, maybe we will live long enough that technology will arise where you can get a uterus maybe, implant. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right in the butt. <laughs> oh. That's where I would put it in. Okay. You. Well, thank you. And <laughs> so to speak. But she's also very tough, right? So during, she walks through the entire, re- well, on the bus and then in the entire refugee camp after her water has broken in while in labor. And it reminds me of that line of that song. Nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Right. <laughs> you know, like just her resiliency of her character, I think narratively made her, her type of character was the perfect choice to be the new mom. Right. Right. Tough as nails, sassy and a great sense of humor, but she feels the baby kick and she feels alive. So, like, we talked about it a little bit before, like, that woman who has love in her heart who doesn't take shit. Yes. You yeah. know? Like, Key is a good example of that, I feel, in the movie. And so, I just was so blown away by how that whole scene in the in the refugee camp, I was like, you're in labor right yeah. now. And, and you're not going. screaming. Like, how are you doing that? Right? And I'm sure. Like you said, tough as nails. Tough as nails. And, I don't know, did you, like, what were your thoughts about her while all that was happening? And, like, what that might mean for someone like her. Well, I mean, in the movie, they do this even better than in the book. But, like, she is the Virgin Mary. Like, <laughs> she's not the Virgin Mary. But, like, she is yeah. the mother of humanity in a sense. Right. right. She and would she, be symbolically, which is what the fish were realizing yeah. and wanted to be in their camp, There's, not in somebody else's. Exactly. And that seed in the stable. Like, it's there's a lot of imagery that's just kind of right in your face. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The peace, peace, like, bringer of peace. Prince of Peace, they'll call him, right? Yeah. And what happens when they're walking down and the baby's crying? But but the nice thing that they do in this movie is it's uh 
it's not a virgin. Right. And or she's not a virgin. Mm-hmm. And the baby's a girl. Yeah. Right? yeah and yeah, yeah. there's a lot of like kind of cheeky moments where it's like, well, this is different and yet the same. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think personally that the profundity of children of men comes from the idea that 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 fundamental human idea that having children is kind of going to be what saves us. Yeah. Like uh, a baby is what saves us. That's so great. Yeah. That's a perennial motif too. Hey? Yeah. Yeah. The child, yeah. the, the, yeah. Baby, like Jesus started as a child. Like yes. We didn't just get the story like, from the beginning. There's a reason Christmas is so profound because it's a baby God. Like, yeah. Good point. So then uh, I made one note on Marika, the gypsy lady that we met in the refugee camp. So she saves them a couple times, right? Uh, she saves them. She finds the room, and then she helps against Sid, and then she helps them find the boat. <laughs> like, basically, yeah. she's... and I mean, she... Yeah, she's the... She helps. She's yeah. she Well, like, it made sense in the plot. It wasn't gratuitous no, in the plot, no. but it was nice that she was a nice person. But this is why I think it's her role, short as it was, was relevatory to me, was that the only reason she went above and beyond was because of the baby. Right. Right? She saw the baby. So she represented people who help out because they care about good things. Right? She sees the value in the baby. She sees the value in what Key and Theo are doing to get away. And she goes out to help. And I, I just... Uh, she kind of struck me as like the hidden majority of humanity. Right. That actually cares very deeply about human things. And will help out when they can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really cool about her, I thought. That's a good point. The last character I made a note on is Luke. So again... I I feel bad. He's famous enough. I should know his name well. Ch- Chuatel or Chuatel Igiofor, the guy who's go. in. I think it was Twelve Years a Slave, right? He's he in a in lot that of one? things. Yeah, and he's in a lot of things. Yeah, he kills Jasper, and his character is completely different from the book. In the book, he's like a priest. Yeah, and he's and very kind and sensitive. And in the movie, he's a killer. Uh, he's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary. Revolutionary that's, zealot. That's like, a better way yeah. to put it. It's the uprising, and they haven't even seen the baby when the fighting is going on in the yeah in the refugee camp his whole life is about politics and i thought he was just a tragic character about that because he like seemed even incapable of seeing the more human side of things and how that could be also a way to upend the establishment because or maybe in a more important thing than the establishment right right but here's okay well i actually think there's an incredibly good real life comparison because he also says how can you be peaceful if they take away your dignity and i wrote that is a hard question that's a really hard question but i would submit martin luther king jr did it gandhi did it gandhi did it and and their contribution to the world is much deeper and more substantive than like let's say someone like luke's would have been or someone in the ira let's say right oh good point that's perfect because that's the real world right this is a hobby horse i'll ride till the end of time like it's the hearts and minds approach that win Yep, over long periods of time. I think MLK, and I mean, this is why I think it's so, so, it just depresses me to no end to think that there's almost like a modern quaintness that liberals today find, or progressives today find on Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Like the yeah. content of his character is a quaint form of <laughs> figuring out how to be a progressive person. Yeah. His version of nonviolence was so impressive 
and people worked so hard to strip away his dignity not just that he was a freedom fighter or a, or a, or symbol for freedom but that he like had a kind of uh, messy personal life yeah <laughs> right yeah. and the slanders given to him that took away his dignity but he didn't stop that was the kind of thing luke was missing which yeah. was why he was i don't know like what was your thought about luke in the movie well i think luke kind of represented to me the power of delusion and often we can become deluded at, at our own strength right, right? sure uprising sometimes work but the vast majority of the time they don't mm-hmm. all throughout even like in venezuela right now people are suffering to a level that is incomprehensible to us and the government still can't be taken down right, right. like people do not understand just the entrenched power mm-hmm. of the state and these revolutionaries are they're extreme optimists in so many ways because we see this in their little uprising in in the refugee camp it gets put down viciously and then and then when it looks like they're kind of losing what do they do they send in fighter jets and they bomb the refugee like you see at the very end of the movie these jets fly overhead and then bombs get dropped yeah like they're not gonna the uprising's done (laughs) Right, which is why the human project was so important because it understood that it kind of had to get away from all of this in order to focus on the problem that really exists. Mm-hmm. And that's also what Julian saw, exactly, which is why she had to go. Yes, right. So there's an incredible point there to be made where the first people often you'll go after are the people in your own movement who slightly disagree with you. Yeah, or I mean, I guess Julian majorly disagreed with Luke, right? But, yeah. But, like, presumably both Julian and Luke started in the fish movement to because they liberate, saw because liberate they saw the injustice. injustice. Yeah. But as time went on, Julian had a better grasp on what was more substantial. And I think what easily floats in is the, the dogma, right? Or the... I don't know. Dogma doesn't feel like quite like the like the thing that makes you zealous. Well, the pursuit like, of ideological purity, or like a defeat being more evidence that you need to try harder in the same direction. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't learn from your mistakes. You simply no. And and when you are in one sense defeated by your enemy, you figure that the best way to deal with that is to use that exact same tactic, but try harder against your enemy. Like, just do what they did to you, but harder. Yeah. And then, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of parables on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Luke, Luke couldn't listen to that. Like, and I feel like, I guess what I find sad about Luke is that there was enough intelligence and emotional maturity a lot of times with him where it's like, it felt close. You know, like it didn't, it didn't feel like he was a bad guy. You know, no. It felt like he was captured by, like, a mind virus. It, well, he was captured by the idea that the ends justifies the means, mm-hmm. and any means will do to reach yeah. my end. And maybe that's just a great meditation on how a really good person can be corrupted by a bad idea, yeah, or a bad version. Like of you an said, idea. a mind virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is tragic but i mean that's not surprising like what your point about Venezuela, like there's a lot of history is replete with people who good people who did bad things because they believed something yep. that 
maybe had evidence against it, but <laughs> but didn't matter. One yeah. reason or another, right? So anyway, I wanted to leave the movie part on a couple finishing thoughts. I'll just say them, and you can react to it as you will, because I think they're interesting. So, but we've also mentioned them a bit, so we don't need. To, if you feel like we've already talked about it, you don't need to pick up right. on it. But these are just the things that struck me the most. So the ma- the most basic human thing in in the movie is the birth, right? That's what's trying to win the day, and it's finding the real life things to care about during intense and terrible shit. And there's a quote from Thomas Paine that I love. All the truth asks for is the liberty of appearing. <laughs> and that reminded me of the babies. Like, all the baby asks for is the liberty of appearing. Because it's so much more human than what all the political factions want to use it for. It's just like, babies don't care. They want to come out. The fact that their existence needs to happen physically is primary to any way we're going to use them, right? Yeah. And so there was a great tension in the movie between that human fact the mother child and then the political fact that was going on i thought the school scene was very moving in that everything is just abandoned and how like something as simple as a swing or a school hallway takes on so much personified significance when it's abandoned yeah (laughs) like just the way we we personify non-animate objects based on their their utility on their utility for you I loved this part, how the baby is born in the ugliest place imaginable to save humanity, right? Yeah. Like in the Jesus story, it's the the inn. But like, this is even worse than that. Like, it's a gross. It's like a gross mattress in the. uh, And Theo sterilizes his hands with whiskey to save it. Like, it's just, it's about as ghetto as it gets. But I loved that. That's also a huge part of this movie. It's like, and this is. I don't want to get. This is a really important point is that you can't overlook the gross places for goodness. No. You know, you just can't. And that maybe is one of the oversights of the sterilization and the sanitization yeah. <laughs> of culture. I think so. You know? I, I think I think we, we don't want to talk about the horrible things, mm-hmm. but often the horrible things are... Like a lot of people, are like oh, I got broken by my past, or right. this horrible. But the the people I admire are not the people who've who've suffered something. Mm-hmm. Just suffering something doesn't give you any kind of nobility. Well, I mean, this is like a very Dickensian thing, like the gold that comes out of the slums of London, yes, right? or the yeah. or the lower classes of London. Like, unless you are also looking there for gold, you don't know where you'll find it. And that could be a meditation on any bad neighborhood in the world. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. and how just the most important event in this world happens in the grossest room in this world. And as a motif, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. The chaos of the long shot at the end of the movie is not just tropes, what people will do to each other. And you real feel the chaos of things. Like it feels real. Like just following people are dying. Yeah. How Theo, the people with Theo, one of the guys with Theo gets killed, but then he gets away because the shoulders show up. So the fish start, like they're about to kill Theo. And like just, it's just absurdly chaotic, but it feels real because of that, you know? And then to me, I, I choked up a bit at the, at the end of the, like it's, you can't say it's the last scene because it's the end of the long shot, which is one of the last scenes. But the whole, the part where from when, Theo meets up with Key and the baby and they walk out down the stairs and out of the building past the the refugees and the soldiers. Like I almost started crying at how beautiful that scene is. Yeah. And the way it made me feel that 
it's like the only thing that could stop the fighting was a baby. Yeah. Well, that's the <laughs> and how prince be- of peace. And Luke right? even says, I forgot how beautiful they were. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the prince of peace, <laughs> yeah. right? That's the moment where it's like, oh. How did, how did that last scene make you feel? A holiness. Yeah. As if there's something deeper and more meaningful about humanity than we ever really mm-hmm. get a hold of. And we become base and animal so often. Yeah. We just slaughter yeah, one yeah, another. Yeah. But then it's like, no. There, there's something yeah. underneath it all. And I, I whether we call that the light of consciousness, I don't know what we call it. Mm-hmm. But there's something beautiful in us. Yeah, and no, it's it's so beautiful and it's it's there's I guess it's just even in a more practical sense, which I don't, is maybe not as deep, but I don't think it's unimportant, is that children have a way of connecting people from completely different backgrounds. Yes. yes. So, like, you know what I noticed the most? I would say, like, one of the deepest things I remember about being in Korea is how parents played with their kids at the park on Sunday. Right. <laughs> you know? That happens here. Yeah. That happens everywhere. Yeah. People playing with their kids... When they have some time and just how in the movie these refugees from all over the world stand and stare in awe at this baby and then these military age white men stand and stare in awe at this baby yeah <laughs> there's the same they're the exact same and it's because of the huge connection we have with what it takes to both love and raise and care for children the things that unite us are great oh, the things that it's divide like us. and i and i guess maybe like this is subconsciously why i care so much about helping kids you know it's that the <laughs> children are actually what keep the world glued together yeah uh, yeah and, and prevent war you know i mean there's so many cliches that are so stupid it's like think of the children or basically using kids for one agenda or another but strip that away and it's like i think that's a vitality of why i care about working with kids so much is that they're how i can connect to people yeah to them and to people and it's like you're helping them have better lives and prepare to have better lives and they are helping you have (laughs) a more vibrant soul yeah by the way they're reminding you of of what it means to be human yeah and it's like discovering all the things you love all over again. Yeah. Like just the other day, I was playing cards with the kids and teaching them a card game that I don't play very much. It's like you're excited again for a card game. Yeah. Like that's what's cool about being around kids. And I don't know, like it's hard to get much deeper than that, I guess. It's true. Like the role of children in life is pretty superlative, I think. I think and that's why, why this also... is such a devastating world. Yeah. Without Where there's it. no children. Yeah. yeah. No joy. Oh, yeah. So, no anyway. purpose. Any yeah. other thoughts about the movie? Not about the movie. Okay. Yeah, a lot more about the book. Yeah. We're going to also do the book. So, thank you for listening to our Children of Men episode. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. See you next time. Bye.